You may have noticed I, I, I decided to wear a, a tie today. After my fashion comments last week, I thought uh, maybe I should wear a tie. Uh, it was either that or torn jeans or high heels. But I thought the high heels would be even more of a distraction, so I went with the tie. Uh, you know, it's funny, we, we, we have been live streaming the services and then they continue to be available online for people that aren't able to come. We started that with the COVID shutdowns and the restrictions and people needing to isolate and so forth. And that's continued that those, for those folks that aren't able to come for a variety of reasons that still are able to then join with us online in worship and we're glad that you're able to join us. And uh, so we also occasionally, most people don't just, just make use of this facility, but, there, but there's a facility on the online streaming to add a comment. You can actually chat back and forth with people in the middle of the service if you want to, using those comments. But uh, I, I remember a few months ago, there was one comment that came through, and it was in all caps, you know, like when you're shouting online, it was all caps, and it said, the preacher looks sloppy. Wear a tie. And I thought, well, gee, that must have been one of Ryan's messages. <laughs> but it wasn't. It was Bob. And uh, where did that come from? Well, it probably came from a different time. It, it, it probably came with some background, and there were probably other feelings or things going on. A lot of times there's, there's things that come out of us that sometimes it's not really about the presenting thing at all, but there's other, there's something else going on. And... Uh, but there is expectations we have of others, and there, are, there are, are things that divide us and that create a hostility. Uh, somebody doesn't measure up to my expectations. Uh, I look down on others based upon my, my own categories. And some of that is what's happening in Ephesians chapter 2, what's being talked about there. And in the midst of that conversation, though, we get a glimpse of not only the broader dimension of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, but also the role then we now have to play in what God is doing in Christ. So I invite you to open your Bibles to, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up from last week in verse 11. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And First, we're going to talk about where were we or how were we, what God has done, and then what are the implications of that. So, first of all, where, where were we? What was our own circumstance? And I think Paul is, Paul is picking up on something here. Do you remember back in chapter 1? I know it was weeks ago. Back in chapter 1, when we were talking about God's choosing, election, and that whole matter of God's choosing uh, gives us trouble because one of the things that comes to mind, and it's good that it comes to mind, you're thinking of others besides yourself, it comes to mind, well, yeah, but in this whole choosing election thing, what about others who are not chosen? We find their comfort for us and assurance and security, but what about those who apparently then are not chosen? Well, here in the middle of chapter 2, Paul reminds them and us that that's exactly who you were. So there's something about an answer to the what about the not chosen when God says that was you and yet God has changed everything for you. So let's jump into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'll read the first two verses and we'll talk about those and then we'll move through the rest of the chapter. 
starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as far as in the flesh, in your physical bodies, biologically, called the uncircumcision by what is called, or the so-called circumcision, which is done in the flesh by hands. It's not the circumcision of the heart that the Old Testament speaks of. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, that you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We're introduced to a simmering below the surface resentment that you were called, you were categorized, you were gathered together and put in this box, and on top of the box it said unworthy, unwanted, unwashed, uncircumcised, heathen, pagans, outsiders who don't belong. That was the box. And there were, uh, that, that boxing, that, that categorizing was done by others who considered themselves, we are God's chosen. God chose us. God has been merciful to us. God has made particular promises to us and not to you. And there was a division. There was a looking down. There was a despising of others. There was an exalting of self wrapped up in that. To one extent or another, it was perceived, and, and, you, and that's the tone we ought to read. You were called the uncircumcised. You were called outsiders. And he says you were. You were separated from Christ. You had no claim on a Jewish Messiah as non-Jewish people in, in Ephesians. You weren't even looking for a Jewish Messiah. You had your own so-called gods, and that's where you sought your fulfillment. That you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That God had, had revealed himself and chosen a particular people to make a nation by whom, through whom, he would make himself known and his ways known to all of the world. And you were not part of that nation. You, you, you were not part of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants that were made to Israel were not made to you. We, we revel in the new covenant. The new covenant is ours. The new covenant is our standing. We celebrate it with every Lord's table as we will next Sunday that this cup is the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And we say that's ours. But it was not promised to us. We somehow have become sharers in it, but it wasn't promised to us. The new covenant was promised through Jeremiah. The prophet says, I will make, because they cannot keep the law. Finding fault with them, he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We were outside that. We had no claim to it. And so we had no hope and were without God in the world. Israel was indeed God's chosen people, and all of us were unchosen. Didn't Jesus himself say, I came to the, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When the Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite woman, a non-Jewish Gentile woman comes to him and begs for healing for her daughter. And he says to her, it sounds so harsh, should the, should the children's food be given to the dogs? 
Now, he wasn't saying the stray dogs of the street, the vermin out there. He was, he was, he was talking about the, the scavengers. He was talking about house pets. But she turns the question around and she said, well, yes. She doesn't dispute the point, but she says, but don't the dogs eat that which falls from the children's table? And if you've had young children, you understand that. There's lots of food that falls off the tray and off the table. And there's a time when it's good to have a puppy under the table that is going to do some of that cleanup for you. And that's the analogy that she replies with. And Jesus said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. She knows her faith includes the reality that I am outside. I am without hope and without God in the world. And yet she comes and lays herself before him for mercy. And he has it. He says, your faith has saved you. Your daughter is healed. But she knew what it was. She understood what it was to be outside. That, that we were outside of his chosen people. We had no claim. We had no real hope. In fact, the Ephesians, with all of the gods and all of the temples in Ephesus, the Ephesians were the true atheists. Which is kind of ironic because that's what, what Christians were called in the early in the early centuries. The Christians within the Roman Empire were called the atheists because the Christians rejected all the other gods of society and they had only one. And because they didn't participate in the other gods of that particular city or the um, god Roma and the emperor worship associated with that or the honoring the emperor, uh, they, they didn't participate in those things. They were considered godless. They were considered atheists. That's what they were called. And yet the true atheists were the ones who were without God in the world. All they have is these so-called pretender gods. And that's where the Gentiles are left. And yet in the midst of that, feeling that, that, that human condition in relation to God isn't only in relation to God, we also experience it as occurs in Genesis 3 and 4. What is true in terms of our separation from God plays out in our separation against one another. And the separation from God is revealed in our separation from one another. The separation from one another is caused by, comes from, reveals our separation from God. The two go together. You see it in Genesis 3, you see it in Genesis 4. And it goes on from there. It only gets worse from there. So we have this distinction, difference, somebody that you would not want to invite to your birthday party. Someone you, who is outside of your circle that you do not want to let in. And you know what that's like. You know what that feels like. It, perhaps you can remember high school. I know for some of us that's a stretch. But go back. The high school and what it was like to be liked and how important that was. And things you would do then, oh, let's not kid ourselves, things you do now, things you'll say or you won't say in order to be in with whatever in-group you want to be in with. Or you'll be careful what you say so that you're not excluded from. I remember when I was in high school, there, were, there was a group that I hang with, and there was, you know, there's kind of a pecking order of the groups. 
And I was not in the top-tier group, not by any stretch of the imagination. I was down considerably lower than that. But I joined myself to that group, and that came with expectations. And I did things probably that I would not have otherwise chosen to do because that's what that group did. If you wanted to be with them, that's what you did. And so I went along with that. And we, as a group, would be excluded from certain other groups because we didn't fit there. We didn't belong there. They did not want us in their groups. There is a... There is an excluding of one another. You felt it. You've been excluded. You know what that's like to be left out. You know what it's like to to try to do what's expected so that you can be a part. And one of the things that happens with us because of our past experience, we bring that into a faulty view of what church life is like. That we feel like to belong with this group, to connect with these people, to be accepted by them, I need to behave a certain way. And we end up focusing on our behavior rather than where our true belonging together comes from. Also, in terms of who we exclude who we avoid, who we distance ourselves from. And sometimes distance is good. Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful who is influencing you. But at the same time, that can also lead to a faulty view of church where we're going to keep ourselves from the impure people of the world around us. We are going to close the doors. We're going to pull up the drawbridge. We're going to keep ourselves safe from the influences that are out there. only problem is that doesn't keep us safe from the influences that are in here. It's a faulty view of church as well, that we can separate ourselves from others and thus we will keep ourselves clean. We have a fallen human tendency to exclude others, to call others, as is seen here, uncircumcised. We have the reality in human experience of being excluded by others, and you've been there. You felt that. Well, what's changed? Well, something has changed. Look at verse 13. You who were outside, you who did not belong, you who had no hope and were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments contained in ordinances or expressed through ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Peace between peoples. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, putting to death the hostility between humanity and God. So there's a peace between people and God, and there's a peace between people because of God. In verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. But now, you were, but now. Reminds us in, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 4 as well that we were dead in sins, but God. God has intervened. We were far off, we have been brought near. The basis by which we were, far, we were far off, but now we've been brought near. We have been brought near in Christ. We have been brought near by his paid-in-full forgiveness. Now, notice also brought near is passive. This is the part of the message where we go into a brief but illuminating Greek grammar message. 
a Greek grammar lesson. And that is that there's active verbs and passive verbs. Active verbs are the things that are describing something you are doing. I went to church. You went to church. Something you did. Uh, if somebody brought you to church, they came to your house, they picked you up, they got you out of bed, they slapped some clothes on you, they put you in the car, they brought you here, they brought you to church. Well, maybe it was just they gave you a, a ride, but you get the picture. A passive verb describes something that is done to you and oftentimes for you. It may be for your benefit, but it's something that's done to you. If somebody excluded you, that's also passive in the sense that, that it's something that happens to you. Okay, or you were excluded. It happened to you. And that's what's happened here, that there was no activity on our part. This is passive. This is something that God has done for us. You were or you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God does this for us. God's the one who has brought us near. And the passive verb becomes very important there. There's a new belonging that God has done in bringing us near. He has made both one, the new, one new from the two. That we are, now this is a little technical, that we are not Jewish, we are not Gentile any longer. We are a new humanity. We are a humanity that is in Christ. God sees us now as a new humanity, no longer the old humanity fallen and lost, separated from God under Adam, but we are a new humanity now, identified with Christ, who is the perfect human, who was the obedient son, who was the suffering servant, who met all the requirements of the law and then died the death that he did not owe because he dies in our place. And then being identified with him, accepting his death as, as, as my death, his resurrection is my resurrection. I am united with Jesus. You are united with Jesus by believing God concerning Jesus, and you are part of that new humanity. Now, it's, it's one new from the two. This is an important point in understanding the flow of the Bible as a whole, because there are promises made to a, a, a people Israel. And those relate to Israel as distinct and different, but blessings from them also overflow to the rest of humanity, the Gentiles. That's why God chooses Israel, to show himself to the whole world. And yet he has not said here that in Christ he has made all of us part of that commonwealth of Israel. We all get to be part of Israel now. No, we are made something new out of the two. He hasn't taken the Israelites now and made them all just like the Gentiles, he has made people from here and people from here, and he's made them into something new. And it's called in Christ. It's called the church. It's called the body of Christ. We'll talk more about that in chapter 3, but, but one of the implications of that is we do not then seek to fulfill ourselves that which God has promised to Israel. We do not seek to follow along and do, maybe in a new spiritual way, the same things that Israel... We don't, have a, a, we don't have priests. We don't have a temple. The church itself, the body of believers, is the temple, the dwelling place of God. That we don't need any other priest other than Jesus himself is our intercessor with the Father. We don't bring sacrifices in and have blood offerings because Jesus has died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he would bring us to God and we belong there. We have been brought near. And we have been brought near in a whole new standing and identity that is centered in Jesus. And so in baptism, that's why baptism is, the, is a starting point in terms of a Christian declaration of faith. I know it's one of those things that often, often gets put off for a while or delayed. And I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. I'm not sure what that means. But basically it means this. I believe that I am joined with Jesus in his death in my place. 
and I am raised with Jesus into new life. And that is a salvation confession. That's why in the early church, baptism happens right after salvation because they are declaring, I believe in Jesus. You believe what about Jesus? I believe that Jesus' death is my death. I believe that Jesus' resurrection is now my resurrection. I have new life in him. We have been joined to Jesus. That's the point. God has made a new humanity, a humanity where you belong. A humanity where you belong with one another. Because he says he's, he has abolished, he has abolished the commandments expressed in ordinances. The law of the Old Testament, with all of its requirements, what you could wear, what you did not wear. Cotton polyester blends, for instance. What, what you, still making the fashion statements. What, what you could touch and what you could not touch. What you could eat and not eat. All, all these requirements that made Israel different. They made Israel a unique and different people from all the other peoples. And some of those things very clearly were a separation from sin. But some of the others were simply to make them different. God's unique people who are doing what God has said. Well, doing what God has said, that's different. But, but those various requirements, the things that made Jew, Jews Jewish, but for instance, circumcision, that the rest of the peoples at the time did not do, well, that was, a, that was one of those things that differed, and the law required it, only for Jewish people, not for others. So because the law was enforced for Israelites, it made a distinction between people. God made a distinction between people, partly because God still does. Now the distinction is simply this. Are you in Jesus or not? To not be in Jesus today is to be without God and without hope in the world. The, the, the abolishing of the law, now that's an interesting statement. Somewhere else Jesus says, I think it's Matthew chapter 5, he said, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And yet here it says that the, he has abolished in Christ, in his death, in his body, he has abolished the commandment expressed in ordinances. Well, it's a different word. Abolished there in, in, in Matthew 5 means to, 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 to destroy completely. Where abolish here has the sense of to annul a marriage, to invalidate a charge. Um, sometimes you'll go shopping. You probably shouldn't, but you do. And you go to one of those places where you have to pay for parking. And you pay on the way out because the longer you stay, the more you pay. They've got this figured out. And, and, but if, if when you go then into the shopping center, into the mall, or into the area of, of the shops in that area, and if you go into this store or that store, you buy something there, or you go to a restaurant, you have dinner there, and you'll be asked the question, would you like me to validate your parking? You say, oh, Yes. Because now you've just scored, you've just saved 10 bucks on parking, right? That's okay, they built it into the meal, but I digress. So, so now the, the law regarding the parking is still there. People who park there have to pay, but that law, that rule for parking has been invalidated for you. There's no problem with the rule about parking. Everybody knows it. It's absolutely fair. You park here, you pay. But you don't have to pay because it has been invalidated. That's the word that's used here. The law has been invalidated for you because it's been paid for full. It was built in to Jesus in his death for you. That's what he's saying there. So that thing that made a difference between human, that, 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 that showed holy and unholy, clean and unclean, that has been 
annulled as far as you because you are in Christ. He, by doing that, by removing the distinction Jewish-Gentile, he then has, has broken down in his flesh, in his body, in dying for us, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this is a fun phrase. It's, it's an odd one to come to, uh, to appear here because it refers to the temple in Jerusalem. And yet, most of these Ephesians had never been to Jerusalem. But the Ephesians are close to Paul, Right? He spent three years among them, longer than any of the other churches that he had a part in founding. And, and there's, a, there's a, a, a closeness there. There were tears when Paul meets with the leadership the last time around at the end of his third journey. He's headed back to Jerusalem, and there are tears shed between them. And, and he goes back, and he arrives to Jerusalem, and he's carrying a gift with others that has been gathered from the Greek churches, and it's for those Jewish Christians around Jerusalem who have been ostracized from their own community they have been disowned by their families because they believe in Jesus. And so they, so, so they have brought help. Along with that, though, Paul's still sensitive to the, the Israel's devotion to the law. And so there are some other Jewish Christian brothers as well that have a vow to fulfill at the temple. And Paul also has that. And so Paul goes with these others and he even pays the requirement for the sacrifice and fulfilling the vows. He pays that for these brothers that he brings into the temple with him, other Jewish men. Now, the problem was, when Paul arrives back in Jerusalem, he's traveling with these other non-Jewish men, these other Gentiles. One of them is a man named Trophimus from Ephesus. Trophimus from Ephesus. That's the guy. And, and he's traveling too, and the Jewish people are already in an uproar about Paul, who seems to be dissing the whole Law of Moses thing a bit. And he's hanging out with these Gentiles, which is obviously another strike against them, because we exclude people by what they do. And who else they hang out with, right? And, and so they assume when Paul shows up at the temple with some other guys, and they're all wearing robes or something, and they all have their tunics on, you can't really tell who's who. Maybe they're wearing a hoodie, I don't know. But they come up in the temple, and I don't think they cared enough to even bother to ask. They just assumed that because everybody knows that Paul doesn't much care about the law anymore, that he had violated the law in bringing Gentiles into the temple area for this vow beyond the dividing wall, which is a four-foot or four-and-a-half-foot high wall, going all the way around the outer court where Gentiles could only stand on the outside of that wall and look over at what was going on inside. They were excluded, you see, even by that wall in the temple. And there were signs on that wall. Archaeologists have found one of them that said, no Gentile can proceed past this line under fear of death, that they will kill you if you go further, closer to our temple where you do not belong. It was excluding. And they assumed that Paul had brought, because he shows up in the city with these Gentile friends, these non-Jewish brothers, that when he comes with men to the temple, that he's brought non-Jewish people into the temple. And there's an uproar, and they want to tear him apart, and the Romans rescue him by arresting him. And he spends the next two years in prison in Caesarea. He appeals to Caesar because basically the governor is going to kind of toss him back to the Jewish authorities in order to make uh, a, a favor with them. And so he appeals to Caesar and now he goes to Rome. And he's in prison. He's a prisoner in Rome because those Jewish religious prejudiced bigots against non-Jewish people 
This is, I'm, I'm speaking in Ephesian terms now. As they saw it, our Paul, our beloved Paul, is in jail, is in prison because of those Jewish people and their narrow-minded bigotry about anybody non-Jews because Trophimus, one of those guys that came back to Jerusalem, you, you know he's gone back to Ephesus and he's told the church what happened to Paul. How did Paul get arrested? Why did Paul get arrested? What went down there? And there's animosity. There's not many Jewish Christians within the Ephesian church, apparently. And this causes, has the potential to cause further animosity against that Jewish community. A population that Paul cares about. He wants the gospel to go to them. He, he, will, he will tell the church in Rome, I would rather myself be excluded if my brothers, according to the flesh, could be included in the gospel. He cares that much about others and for them. And so there's a potential for animosity, and Paul's working very hard here saying that that dividing wall of hostility, that reason that you now have a grudge against Jewish people, and through church history, I didn't mention this first hour, but through church history, the Christian church as a whole has had a problem with discrimination or hatred against Jewish people. Through church history, there have been times that the Jewish people have been singled out as the killers of Christ. It was a Roman cross. It was for my sin. So we can't hang that on any particular people. He dies for us. And yet, through time, we have. And I mention all of this to ask one question. Who do you hold a grudge against? Who do you have some lingering bitterness again? Maybe for some wrong that has been done against you. Maybe it's another Christian that you have a hard time forgiving. You have a hard time letting go. They would not be invited to your birthday party. Who do you have a hard time extending forgiveness to? There will be hurts in this world. We will offend one another. We will hurt one another. Will we own it? Who have I hurt? Who have I offended? And what ought I to do to make it right? And yet my making it right is not the basis of forgiveness any more than my making it right is the basis by which God has forgiven me in Jesus. It's not by anything that I do. I have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And that works its way out, Paul says, horizontally. The fact that we are all saved on the same basis, it is all level ground at the cross. We are all saved by the same forgiveness, and we experience that forgiveness. We taste it. We nibble around the edges of it when we extend that kind of forgiveness to people who need it from us. People who would be indebted to us. People who we might have a legitimate grudge. Something to hold against them. And yet, in Christ's name, we will let that go. Who do you exclude that you should not exclude because of what Christ has done for us? There's a new unity from former hostility that we need to recognize. In fact, we need to live in it. We need to live out that aspect of the gospel toward others. You know, with Israel, they despised Gentiles as the dirty unwashed. The nations resented that Jewish pious pride as unjustifiably arrogant and aloof. 
And that ought not to be the case between the church and the world today. We ought to be known as a caring and forgiving people. We ought to be known as a righteous people, a people who walk in God's will by the power of His Spirit. But part of that will is forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Jesus died for all to save us on the same basis. The religious Jews, the unwashed Gentiles, church people and non-church people, uptown and downtown, city and suburbs, homeschool and public school, blue-collar, white-collar, slavery, hourly, Greek, barbarian. It is all level ground at the cross. There was something in Israel revealed by the prophet Jonah. The book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's a funny story. Well, the prophet Jonah wakes up one day and he says, okay, God, what do we have today? And God says, I've got a great plan, Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, okay, well, what else we got going today? And he goes another way. And yet God gets his way, right? God does bring Jonah out of the water and onto Nineveh, dripping wet as he goes, and Jonah's still not happy about it. And Jonah is not about Jonah. Jonah is actually about Israel. Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites has been Israel's attitude toward the world, and it dare not be our attitude toward others when Christ has done this for us. That his forgiveness is ours now to extend. Beware of the Jonah syndrome. For example, how do you view Muslims? Do you see Muslim people generally, as a backwards, they're still living in the ninth century, violent people devoted to a false religion and thus deserving of God's judgment? Or do you see Muslims as a least reached people in the world who are in most need of an opportunity to genuinely hear the gospel from somebody else who cares about them? How do you view Muslims? How do you view people around you in society today who maybe have an adamant, opposite opinion about something that matters greatly to you? And I would go on to suggest should matter greatly to you. But what, do you, how do you, what is your attitude toward those people? who are dead in trespasses and sins, who are being led along according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that we read about last week, that they are, they are dead in trespasses and sins. They are without hope and without God in the world. And we are the ones who are to be light in the midst of darkness. We are not light by holding a grudge or nursing bitterness But we are a light in the midst of darkness where we extend forgiveness even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Who do you not really have room for in your concern for salvation? What grudge do you need to let go of? Who has hurt you, shamed you, looked down on you, left you out? The peace in salvation that is through the cross of Jesus is both vertical, peace with God. Verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing, putting to death the hostility with God. The peace 
that is in salvation in Christ is a vertical piece between us and God, and it is a horizontal piece. Think of the cross as having a vertical component and a horizontal component. Think about that every time you think of your faith as a Christian in the cross upon which Jesus died for us, that there's a vertical component, which also means there's a horizontal component to it. There is a peace between us and others. God's purpose is to bring both back into right relationship with God, those who thought themselves especially chosen by God, Jewish people, and those who did not know God at all, Gentiles like the Ephesians. He has dealt with hostility with God. He has dealt with our hostility with others. What do we learn about God's own nature from this reality? Is God exclusive or is God inviting? Is God condemning or is God receiving? Is God judgmental or is God gracious? We'll learn something about God's own character and what he calls us to be. There's an interesting line there in verse 17. It says there that he came, Jesus came, after his death on the cross, he came and proclaimed this peace. He made it known. He told us, he, the Greek word there is he evangelized. He told the good news to you who were far off and those who were near. I have a question for you. When did Jesus go to Ephesus? When was that exactly that he preached to you, Ephesians, who were far off? I asked that question and somebody said, well, maybe it was after his resurrection, just before he came to the Americas, he, he went to Ephesus first. That's probably not what happened. Jesus didn't go to Ephesus. Paul went to Ephesus. Apollos went to Ephesus. Somebody's named Priscilla and Aquila went to Ephesus. And Jesus proclaims the gospel to them or to the Ephesians through these whom he sends. Jesus proclaims his good news. Jesus evangelizes. Jesus tells others the gospel through those of you who believe. As Jesus proclaimed, as Jesus made it known to the Ephesians, Jesus makes it known to your neighbors, to your friends, to those people you don't even like. But you should care about because God loves them, even as he loves you. And so he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You are members of the household of God. You've been brought into God's family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You know, we have taken the Great Commission as a church. We have taken that phrase of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and we've, we've adapted it into three phrases, where Jesus says, going therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you. The making disciples includes going and baptizing them into faith in Christ and teaching them to observe. And we have taken those three phrases and we've said, our mission as a church is to go to others around us. And we see that right here. Proclaiming peace to you who were far off. Going to others around us. And bringing them into God's family. That might be in contact with God's family. 
among us to experience something about this new community in Jesus. It may be by faith in Jesus, by being born again, that they are actually made part of God's family because they also believe. Becoming members of God's household and then being built up as followers of Jesus, built on the foundation of God's word, the apostles and the prophets, being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. God's calling for us is to go to, is to bring in, to build up. You were outside. You were an outsider. You were left out. You were excluded. You were not chosen. And yet God has brought you in. God brought you in. God made you his own. Behold a manner of love the Father has given to us that we, we should be called the sons of God, the children of God, and such we are. And yet we haven't seen the, all of it yet. My paraphrase of 1 John 3. You were outside, but God has brought us in. God has brought us in to bring others in. That's it in a nutshell. I could have said that and sat down. But let me close with one more question. Who is near you? Who is near you that Jesus would speak through you to them? Who is it that you can go to? You have connections that I don't have. You know people that I don't know. You're around a whole circle of people that God has strategically placed you in as an ambassador for Christ. Who will you go to? Because that's the privilege. He's made us his own to do his own most precious work. Outsiders made insiders to bring others in. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do that? Lord, would you, do, would you indeed help us, Lord, to not exclude ourselves from people around us, but rather to go to them, to realize their need like our need, to know you as Savior. Indeed, sin separates people from God. Sin then separates people one from another. And the only answer to that is in Jesus. And Father, we know him. So, Lord, burden our hearts with the need to tell others of him. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.